This is Nick Park, and this is the XXXY Files, a series of messages, podcasts, and videos from Evangelical Alliance Ireland on sexuality and gender, helping and equipping Christians to hold and share a biblical position with clarity and love. Due to the nature of some subjects discussed in these messages, parental discretion is advised. File 1. Moral Panic or a Biblical Response There's no doubt that many Christians are struggling to respond to rapid changes in how gender and sexuality are viewed in wider society. There was a time when we believed that our surrounding culture shared and reflected our values. True, we knew that when it came to chastity before marriage, faithfulness within marriage, and remaining married until death us do part, that large numbers of the population did not observe Christian values. But it seemed unthinkable that a time would come when Christians could face disdain and derision for not enthusiastically embracing same-sex marriage, or that prominent figures in society would identify as a different gender from their biological sex and be applauded for doing so. For these changing moral values to be commended to our children in schools, including schools that were established under the auspices of Christian churches, is disorienting indeed. It is tempting to believe that the world has never been at a place where moral standards have diverged so widely from biblical morality. How many times have you heard Christians declaring that the world has never been so wicked as it is today? Historically, however, that isn't true. There have been periods in history when society has been considerably worse than it is today. For example, the Roman world in which the first century church ministered was worse in every respect than our world today. Slavery was inextricably woven into Roman society. Even if you didn't own slaves yourself, it was almost impossible to work in most trades and professions without, at some point, being a master or a slave. It was permissible and common practice for slave owners to rape their slaves, both male and female, and both adults and children. Animal cruelty was the norm rather than the exception. It was evident in the killing of animals and people for public entertainment in the arena. A popular annual public holiday in Rome involved a ceremony where dogs were crucified for the entertainment of children. Abortion was legal, as was the practice of killing unwanted infants by leaving them exposed to the elements to die of hypothermia, thirst or attacks from wild animals. Child abuse was considered a normal part of society. A father could legally rape his children, and children were sold into prostitution. Petronius, who lived during the period of the Acts of the Apostles, described the rape of a seven-year-old girl while a line of women stood around the bed, clapping and cheering on the rapist. While consensual homosexual relationships did exist, it was more common for such acts to be forced on others. Those in power took the dominant role, which was considered a demonstration of masculine virility, and the powerless had to submit. Nobody appeared to question this as being in any way immoral. Cross-dressing was usually confined to the festival of Saturnalia, the holiday that was later replaced by Christmas, and men would wear flowered robes and take a submissive role in orgies. 
However, there were a few who would adopt a permanent lifestyle of living as the opposite gender. Perhaps the most disconcerting aspect of all this immorality is that it was not confined to the fringes of society or to those deemed as deviants. Those in political authority participated in all these practices while still maintaining their popularity. Tiberius, the Caesar whose head was engraved on the coin that Jesus held in Mark 12, 16, 17, he was famous for training young boys to pleasure him with underwater sex acts in his private swimming pool. Caligula was emperor when Peter first preached the gospel to Gentiles at Cornelius's house. He was fond of wearing women's clothing and committed numerous atrocities. He used to force the wives and daughters of prominent Roman citizens to become prostitutes for guests at his lavish banquets. Nero ruled as emperor when Paul wrote his epistle to the Romans, complete with its injunctions to respect and obey those in authority. Nero's first marriage to his stepsister ended when he had her murdered and her head delivered to his palace. He killed his second wife, Poppy Sabina, by kicking her to death when she was pregnant. He later missed her greatly and found Sporus, a young man who bore a striking physical resemblance to Poppy Sabina. So Nero had Sporus castrated, dressed him up as a bride, and married him. They lived together as man and wife. Nero also participated in a wedding ceremony where he dressed up as the bride and another man dressed up as the groom, and they then consummated their marriage, in inverted commas, in front of the assembled guests. This makes for uncomfortable listening, I know. Researching this stuff and writing about it is one of the more unpleasant tasks I have ever undertaken, but it's important that we understand how wicked the world was in the period in which the New Testament was written. It is absolute nonsense to say that the world is worse now than it has ever been. In every single respect that I can think of, the contemporary world of the New Testament was, in a moral sense, infinitely worse than the society in which we live today. None of this is to minimise the situation in which we find ourselves today. We are living in a period of moral decline, a departure from even pretending to follow Christian values, but the Christian church started in a much more immoral environment. This might seem a strange perspective from which to start a series of messages that aims to articulate and defend Christian values, but we need this perspective for two reasons. Firstly, the idea that we are facing an unprecedented moral decline leads us very easily into a moral panic, and when we panic we rarely express ourselves well. For example, if my wife asks me a question about something when I'm late for an appointment and can't find my car keys, then I'm not likely to respond well. My panic makes me short-tempered and my behaviour becomes unattractive. My wife understandably gets hurt by me snapping at her because my panic hinders me from being the nice Christian man I believe I really am. Panic even affects animals in the same way. I was once bitten quite severely by my adorable old English sheepdog puppy because she was being attacked by two other dogs. Her panic caused her to lash out at the nearest object, which happened to be me. She's not an aggressive or dangerous dog by any means, but panic brings out the worst in all of us. Moral panic, at its worst, leads to a siege mentality, lynchings, witch trials, persecution of minorities and the demonization of vulnerable people. 
even when less extreme, it has the effect of making our message profoundly unattractive to anyone who doesn't already share our beliefs. The second reason why we need to get some historical perspective is because we can learn from the first century church. Having a biblical worldview doesn't just mean agreeing with biblical de definitions of right and wrong. It also means responding to the surrounding world in a biblical way. The Church of the New Testament lived in a world where morality, in every single respect, was worse than it is today. So how did they respond? They didn't launch a moral crusade to clean up Roman society. They didn't seek to make the Roman Empire great again. They didn't write epistles filled with lurid stories of everything that was wrong with government and society. They did believe that the surrounding society was profoundly sinful. That meant that they weren't continually being shocked and outraged by the behaviour of their neighbours. Of course people were doing sinful things all around them. That's exactly what you'd expect to happen in a sinful world. This was not a reason to hate their sinful neighbours. It was a reason to reach out to them with the life-changing message of the gospel. They did examine their own behaviour and seek to live in conformity with God's standards of right and wrong. They couldn't, even if they'd wanted to, force their non-Christian neighbours to live like Christians, but they could make sure that they themselves lived like Christians. And the wonderful thing is that they did affect changes in society. By living holy lives that were in stark contrast to the surrounding immorality, they paved the way for life in the Roman Empire to change for the better. Much of biblical Christian morality became the standard to which others, not just Christians, aspired. If the New Testament church was able to do this successfully in their evil days, then I have total confidence that we as the church can do this again. In our next episode of the XXXY Files, we will be examining the biblical foundation for a principled evangelical view of sexuality and gender. We need to understand and have confidence in what the Bible teaches. We need to be prepared to express our beliefs, a right that is guaranteed to us under the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, and we need to defend those beliefs. But we can only do this well if we are rooted in reality, avoid moral panic, and have the humility to learn from the New Testament Church.